Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and changemakers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Hello, I'm Dr. Romy Redding. And I'm Dr. Billy Pivnik. And welcome to Couch. Today, Billy and I are honored to be hosting two wonderful guests. Before introducing them, a quick note for our listeners, Allie Merchant, whom you met last episode. She will be joining me as co-host next time, so we hope you will tune in for that. Today, we're thrilled to welcome Drs. Robert J. Lifton and Sally Weintraub. A pioneer in the field of psychohistory, Robert J. Lifton is a psychiatrist and author best known for his studies of the psychological causes and effects of war and political violence, and for his theory of thought reform and cult behavior. He's written over 20 books, including many influential works in the field, such as the National Book Award-winning Death in Life, Survivors of Hiroshima, and the LA Times Book Prize-winning The Nazi Doctors, Medical Killing, and the Psychology of Genocide, as well as The Climate Swerve, and Losing Reality, and, most recently, Surviving Our Catastrophes, Resilience and Renewal from Hiroshima to the COVID-19 Pandemic. Dr. Sally Weintraub is an esteemed psychoanalyst, author, activist, and editor. Her publications include Engaging with Climate Change, Psychoanalytic and Interdisciplinary Perspectives, numerous peer-reviewed articles, and most recently, the groundbreaking book, Psychological Roots of the Climate Crisis, Neoliberal Exceptionalism, and the Culture of Uncare. She's a fellow of the British Psychoanalytic Society and an original member of the Climate Psychology Alliance and chairs the International Psychoanalytic Association's Climate Committee. Thank you, Billy. Thank you for the introductions. And welcome back, Robert. We're delighted to have you on the show again. And welcome for the first time, Sally. Thank you so much for joining us. We're honored to have you here. So I want to start by sharing a quote from your latest book, Robert, that really struck Billy and I as encapsulating the spirit of both you and Sally's work. Here's the quote. Scholarship is rendered meaningful by activism, and activism is significantly informed by scholarship. Both need to be undertaken with discipline. So if each of you could say a bit about how you understand this personally, especially since many see the two as incompatible or at minimum too wieldy to hold simultaneously, that would be great. And feel free, either of you, to begin. Well, I would say that all of my work is based upon combining scholarship and activism. There's a misunderstanding that thinks they are separate and antagonistic and ne'er the twain shall meet, that's exactly wrong because scholarship really clarifies activism and activism gives meaning to scholarship. So important work that can help influence us on a large scale should combine and must combine scholarship and activism. I very much agree with what you've just said. Just picking up on scholarship, it's really linked to what you're also talking about and 
and I do too, which is trying to, in a disciplined subjectivity, trying to approach and stick with, in a sustained way, what is truthful. And that involves scholarship. And it also takes you to some places that you might not have realized when you started out, because Robert, you're a psycho-historian. I'm a psychoanalyst who, in getting involved with the climate crisis, I've realized that I had to study way outside my discipline. And I feel I've become a bit of a psycho-historian as well. I'd like just to add one more thing, which is that I think that activism can also be what one does as a citizen actions that one takes as a citizen. And I think that's not quite what we're talking about here. Yes, it is all certainly related. And that's why I use the term witnessing professional, but it can be an ordinary people who also bear witness. And for instance, to give you an example of my thinking on this issue, when I initiated my work in Hiroshima, and went to live there for six months, I certainly was intent on doing a scientific interview study and did that while encouraging them to express themselves freely and associate. But I came to realize that it was necessary to go further for ethical reasons and to extend my ethical responsibility toward telling their story, toward witnessing what they had been through. And in that way, being a witness to witnesses, that was crucial because I could retell their story as an investigative psychiatrist, and they would then have a voice that extended from Hiroshima throughout Japan and even throughout the world, and helping witness the witnesses, in a sense, encouraged them to do what they have done in traveling throughout the world to tell their story and to themselves bear witness to what that bomb could do and did. The first use of a nuclear weapon on a human population. And in that way, both to a service to the world, but at the same time, making the transformation from a helpless victim into a life-enhancing survivor who has a special form of experience and of knowledge that no one else has. And my book, quite simply, is about confronting our catastrophes and making use of the special knowledge of survivors and the legacy that they can leave. And that is, of course, psychohistorical because there's always a historical perspective to which one brings one's psychological issues. We are not just in the context of history. History is very much in us in everything we do, in what we are, and in our identity. And that's what psychohistorical work insists upon saying. I heard people saying it's lovely what you just said about history is in us. I completely agree with that. I wanted to pick up, Robert, on 
resonating with what you said about witnessing. And I haven't experienced the sort of traumatic witnessing that you have in the situations that you've been in. But I think that one of the things that comes across to me about your work, and I resonate with it too in my climate work, is that actually to be a witness, and you make this very clear, is to be able to take in the suffering of a victim. And one can never, as you say, one can never completely identify with what that means. But it's a difficult thing to do because it taxes one. It takes one right up to what's bearable and not bearable. And I think that that comes across so much in your work. And it's something that I've been struggling with as well. And when one's able to do that, one sees the subject very differently that one's looking at. And what also relates to people very differently, because they can then have some sense that you can actually listen to them. Yes, absolutely. That's what is so wonderful about your writing is the ability to take in so much suffering to people feel listened to. What you're saying is important because often people say, oh, you must be very brave to deal with these very painful matters. It's not so much a matter of bravery. It's developing a kind of personal identity of one who does this work. Now, to live out that identity means to take in some pain in relation to the pain of my study of Nazi doctors a long time ago, a number of years ago, when I spoke to Elie Wiesel, I half complained to him that it was okay that he supported my work, which he did. But I was having terrible dreams in which I was behind barbed wire. And unfortunately, in those dreams, my wife could sometimes be there with me and even my children. And he looked at me without either criticism or excitement and just said to me, good, now you can do the study. What he meant was he could recognize that I was struggling with taking in enough pain to have the study contain a certain power, recognition of the pain that I was taking in, which of course would be conveyed to the people I interviewed. And that also brings up the concept of Martin Buber, which I quote toward the end of my book called Imagining the Real. It's our imaginations that we're struggling with, and the pain is in our imagination and our emotions. But that pain, psychological and emotional, is there because we must confront in our imagination the reality of the catastrophe sounds logical and easy, but not so easy, because in that confrontation, one must first represent that there are indeed such catastrophes. And that, of course, is denied by Trumpists and their allies in American society. You cannot confront or survive catastrophes without recognizing that they exist. And that group tends to try to prevent imagining the real. And that's a real struggle in our society to imagine the real. And those catastrophes we're surviving are many-sided nuclear, climate, 
virus, Ukraine, and the threat to our democracy. These are five apocalyptic or near-apocalyptic catastrophes, all of which we must inwardly imagine, imagining the real in order to combat them. Robert, as you're talking, I'm making a link to something that Sally writes about, too. CARE's new imagination, an imagination required for healing. Could you say a bit about that and maybe link with some of the ideas that Robert was sharing with imagination and facing reality? Absolutely. And I wanted to give an example of some work, a project I've just finished and written up, which was a youth group and an elders group talking about climate, where the youth met on their own and the elders met on their own, and then they met together in an intergenerational conversation. And it was very, very moving. I concentrated on the youth, and these are 17 to 22-year-olds. There's nothing they don't understand about what's going on with climate. I mean, one could just learn from them. They were deeply troubled, and they also support each other. They understand the group pressures. They know the climate science, and they really struggle with a lot of despair. And the elders were much more in denial and what you call, Robert, rejection, outright rejection of climate reality. And I put it there in the climate bubble. Your language, I think, would be malignant normalcy, Robert. But we say things differently, but it's the same thing, really. And then when they came together, the elders didn't want to hear from the youth. They couldn't bear it. And the reason I'm saying this is not only to let you know that, but because I couldn't bear it. I felt so bad. I thought, why did I do this study? What have I done? And I felt terribly guilty. And it was actually in working that through that I also was helped to understand the elders' position because in the second elders' group, they were very troubled by how they'd been to the youth. For example, what's wrong with you all? Why are you so gloomy? It was dreadful. But they really worked on it and they were really struggling. And what I noticed is that I think that my taking in such pain, I just thought, I can't bear it. I was lying on the sofa just thinking, I cannot do this. I just have to go away. I think it's trying to manage that and being a witness to that is something to do with this work. I just wanted to add that in because it's it's something I've been involved with very recently. I mean, the caring imagination, I think, is critical as well because it's imagining a future that is viable. And I think that especially given our general culture, we're given very little of that. Yes. And it really matters because I think it helps people to imagine a future that's viable. I think that work is important. And here I would invoke a concept of the Spanish philosopher Ortega Gasset, who spoke about the flow of generations. And what Ortega Gasset meant was that history was never still. It was always enlivened and stimulated by the flow of generations, because each generation experienced a different moment in history and reacted to that moment and could bring to it an embrace of what earlier survivors who have a limited lifespan had learned and taught them. So the flow of generations keeps the possibility of change and activity as a part of the flow of history itself. And in that way, those groups could 
recognized that they were separate from each other, and yet they were part of some common flow. And a focus on the younger generation is crucial. And also, as you're indicating, helped out a great deal to the older generation, which could allow itself to, in a sense, rethink things, and also to the questioner yourself, who could allow yourself to come back, be a little bit changed by the whole thing, and rather value it once you had come to terms with it. Very much so. Yep. So, Sally, you write a lot, not just generational divisions, but the kind of political divisions created by leaders who are invested in an us versus them kind of way of managing all this anxiety that gets stirred up by climate and virus and death anxiety. I wonder if you could tell us something more about how you think about that, because your idea about the way we bring a sense of exceptionalism to bear really gets us into trouble. And you have a wonderful argument that explains that. I wonder if you could tell us more about it. Well, just comparing languages, I think that my ideas on exceptionalism very much tie in with what you're calling solipsistic reality, Robert. And it's absolutely linked with one form of entitlement, which is narcissistic entitlement. And so in very crude terms, it's I'm entitled to idealize myself. I'm entitled to have whatever I can get hold of by right. And, and this is the crucial thing, I'm entitled to rearrange reality such that I don't have to feel bad about that. But I also talk about lively entitlement, which is not nearly so much conceived of, which is I'm entitled to a relationship with reality. I'm entitled to try and become ethically mature, be responsible, live life's message. I'm entitled to that. I'm also entitled to conditions that support life. So that's a different sort of entitlement. And there's a great struggle between the two. What I write about is that is the psychological basis of this, but I concentrate on the neoliberal era. I'm not really writing about neoliberalism as such, but I choose that because this is the era where in exceptionalism, being an exception is to be narcissistically entitled. It has absolutely soared and it's been linked with a certain kind of growth of corporations, fossil fuel industry and so on. And it's led to a lot of demoralization, by which I mean separating people from their moral sense and creating a lot of moral injury. What I would say, which would be in keeping with this and perhaps take it a little further, yes, there is the problem of American exceptionalism and it is accompanied, as you say, with a sense of entitlement But when you take the Trumpists and allies and look at them, they go far beyond simple moral exceptionalism. They try to own reality. Yes, it's solipsistic reality, but it's a very political kind of expression. And here I would emphasize the interaction of the political and the psychological They're not entirely separable, and that's why each of us has to learn a lot of things about the political process in order for us to put forward a psychological perspective. The Trumpists in 
denying or rejecting climate change, for instance. I say rejecting rather than simply using the word denying because each of them somewhere in his or her mind has to recognize that climate change does exist, even though it's more incremental than, say, in a nuclear weapon, it nonetheless is with us and we're seeing its effects. If they were to accept that truth of climate change, they would have to change their own identity. They would have to take steps that cost money and that would get disapproval from their financial sources and from their political party. So it's a rejection as much as denial, and it includes American exceptionalism, but goes much further. And one has to add the simple fact that during the Trump administration, literally hundreds of thousands of people died in the pandemic because of the false approach that he used. And it was really a murderous form of rejection of truth and a murderous example of how denial of truth and holding to the major overall untruth about the outcome of the election, stopping the steal, can cost hundreds of thousands of American lives. This is the real power of your book, actually, Robert, in absolutely making this point about the consequences of rejection. And I wanted just to say to you that I was fascinated and grateful for you calling it rejection, because I've been struggling with the same sort of thing, only you're talking about it at a very mad end of things, because I've been thinking there are certain states where somebody knows what's going on, but they disassociate themselves from it. It's almost like a choice. And it's accompanied by different worldviews, each side of this argument. You're living in one universe versus living in another mental universe. So when you just said rejection, I thought, yes, it's a very active thing. And one can even recognize it in small ways in oneself when one, for instance, makes an environmentally damaging choice and something sort of comes down like an axe. And you just think, I'm not thinking about that. I've cut it off completely. So that whole area of things, I think, is very, very important. But I think you're spelling out the absolute dangers of it. And earlier, you were also linking it with some sort of sense of owning reality. I do really appreciate your concept of rejecting. In terms of that, I would add that, yes, the white supremacists led by Trump have constantly sought to own reality. Trump is incapable of a continuous ideology, not like the Soviet Russians or the Nazis. And what you say about their not wanting to feel it is very close to what I call psychic numbing or diminished capacity or inclination to feel. And psychic numbing, as you say, is very close to other defenses, which might be repression or derealization or others of that sort. But what psychic numbing does alone is to be concerned only with feeling and not feeling. And that is, of course, highly dangerous. 
and allows one to take on the idea of owning reality. The other thing I would say is that, and I try to develop this in my book, is that people who are heavily traumatized, as in Hiroshima, certainly, but also as in Auschwitz, they have a choice of either shutting down or opening out. And most survivors do both. And in that way, they must make the journey from the acted upon to the life-enhancing survivor. And making that journey is helped by the emergence of leaders from the survivors, as we saw in Hiroshima, who can articulate their conflicts, can rally them behind the idea of life energy and applying survivor wisdom. And in that way, those who have suffered so much become leaders of peace movements everywhere. They tell the story of what one nuclear weapon can do, and they live out leadership in peace movements so that in the recent very, very admirable decision of the UN Committee in relation to ICANN, that is making a decision that even the stockpiling of nuclear weapons, not just their use, but even the stockpiling violates international law. There were Hiroshima survivors at the heart of that decision whose testimony gave important evidence for the UN making that very important decision. And they continue to be highly influential in peace movements and in spreading their message. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you, Robert, if you've come across the work of Rob Nixon on slow violence. Slow violence. Well, I haven't. The reason that Rob Nixon's concept came to mind was when you were talking about Hiroshima survivors. And in a way, they have sort of experienced the true grim reality of things and the way in which working that through and being able to grounds people if they can survive it and go in and out of surviving it. The thing with slow violence is that things deteriorate little bit by little bit. And it makes it quite psychologically complicated to understand what's happening, to grieve the moment. And then, of course, slow violence turns into dramatic violence, as we're seeing with climate now. Just one example of it, I went to eastern Poland this summer to the Białowieża forest, which is the ancient forest, and got out of the vehicle and... I was in tears because there were just insects everywhere. And I think it was the impact of seeing a relatively undamaged environment and realizing that, of course, in London, we don't have insects anymore. The bird sounds are going down and so on and so forth. And I've been puzzling about that. We were taken around the forest and there is illegal logging and the trees, the oak trees are stressed and so on by climate. But there seems something very moving to me about having a relatively intact environment that I was lucky enough to be in to suddenly make me start mourning what we've lost. And I think to me that was slow violence, that it sort of crept up on me and I hadn't really noticed what had been going on. Sally, one of the things that Robert said in his book, quoting Rilke, killing is one of the forms of our wandering mourning. 
Yes, I guess I haven't yet mentioned here the work of Alexander and Margareta Bicherlich, who I knew as friends. Both have died fairly recently. First of all, they were leading actors in the underground in passing important documents. But then they wrote this book, The Inability to Mourn, and their argument was that people have to undergo large amounts of mourning and they have to do it collectively for a society to move ahead. And German society after World War II was unable to do that because the people in Germany had been themselves moved by a Fuhrer they loved and were implicated with. And they found that their love object was evil and that they were implicated themselves in the evil and they preferred to see themselves as victims. They did indeed suffer after the war, but they blocked out their involvement by seeing themselves as victims and by the inability to mourn, the Mitchellishes really meant the inability to come to terms with what they had been part of. And they attributed the stagnation of post-war Germany, the inability to make real progress, although some progress did come much later, but that early inability to make progress to that same inability to mourn. But it taught us a great deal about our own situation as well. Robert, when you say our own situation, are you referring to the list of things you had mentioned before? Is that how you're meaning that? I do mean the list of catastrophes, but I can give, I think, an interesting and important and rather powerful example in looking at the experience of American Vietnam veterans whom I interviewed over time. I interviewed many anti-war veterans, and I interviewed one of them who had been at My Lai, the place where America slaughtered about 500 people one morning in a small village. And that event was an act in part of angry mourning. What I mean by that is the night before the slaughter, the company commander named Medina did two things. First of all, he gave expression to a military policy which said, there are no civilians in this area. We have to kill everyone in sight. But he also had with him a chaplain and there was a ceremony of mourning for a beloved Sergeant Cox, who had been a little older than the other men and had himself been relied upon for guidance. And he had been killed by uh, the explosion of a weapon that he was trying to dissemble in order to render it safe for the rest of the company. And much of that evening before the slaughter was a ceremony of mourning for Sergeant Cox and a psychological state of angry mourning, which had been assumed by so much of the company 
because of their loss. And that's an unusual way to look at the My Lai massacre, but it's a very important way for us to understand it. And that, in turn, is what I call an atrocity-producing situation, where you can take ordinary men or women, no more or less moral than you or me, and put them under certain extreme circumstances involving policy and involving psyche, and there can result in atrocity or mass killing. I think you also said there with that example that later some of them regretted very much what had happened and started thinking about the people that they'd killed. So they seem to be able to move out of that and re-engage with some different kind of mourning. I think I'm right in, in saying that. Yes, well, one isn't necessarily stuck forever in a kind of false mourning or angry mourning. Mourning is involved in all of these catastrophes, and it in turn is related to imagining the real, and it has to be confronted, and the real must be imagined for the mourning process to be carried out, particularly in a nonviolent way. I think the really powerful message of your new book is the necessity for mourning and that if it doesn't happen, we're headed towards violence and all kinds of psychic malignancies. And I mean, it's a very, very powerful message. Maybe as a little pivot here, moving towards a ending of a kind, how do we, I'm thinking about the listeners right now, begin to think through our doubts the mindset of the doubt of it can't be done. It can't be done. We can't get off of fossil fuels. We can't overcome white supremacy. We can't overcome our catastrophes pending and those that are unfolding currently. Sometimes friends or students of mine have said, look, I went to a couple of demonstrations and things are still as bad as they have been. What the hell's the use? Maybe it can't be done. And there's an answer for that. It isn't a moment of truth a moment you might call of Sartori, where everything is solved and we live happily ever after. Rather, it's a continuous process that we're in, a continuous process of confronting untruth, confronting the big lie, and recognizing that the energy of protest has to be sustained into the future into the unending future. And I think very much what we have in common in this enterprise today is a commitment to that continuous process of protest and of change. And people say, well, maybe it's too late for climate change. And the answer I give is it's never too late because if you don't stop protesting it and making some sort of mitigation, some sort of diminution of the impact of climate change, then it will be still more catastrophic so that it is never too late and the continuous expression of heresy and protest goes indefinitely into the future. And that's what we're about, or at least I see myself as about in my work. 
Which I think brings us back to Sally's point about citizenship, that it's not just about bearing witness and mourning. It's also recognizing that there are so many catastrophes and they're of such long, enduring difficulty that we have to get engaged as citizens. We do our work with a continuous sense of hope. Nothing is guaranteed, but some form of mitigation, some form of life-enhancing behavior is possible. To sustain that possibility, we must seize upon that hope and continue to create that possibility always with a spirit of hope. The possibility and the hope continue, and that really becomes our life mission. That was great. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Sally. Thank you, Robert, for joining us on Couch. We really appreciate having you here. I have such a deep respect for the work the two of you have been doing, and I look forward to giving it to our listeners, passing it along. Yeah. Okay. Well, I too have really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. We want to add my thanks to. Yeah. Thank you all. And now it's time for us to stop. Thank you for listening to Couched with Drs. Billy Pivnik and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. Thank you.